politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back This is Blotto here, episode 93 or so, approaching that centennial. That's kind of exciting. A lot going on in the last week. Some political, some personal. Very quickly, the most personal thing that happened to me in the last week is I got hitched to Pop-Tart. Made it official. So that's kind of exciting. We eloped on down to Florida with some close friends and uh, did it up. Had an excellent time, and then after a week in Florida, came back, and into the grind it goes. So uh, I appreciate all of your congratulations, and um, looking forward to a uh, long and happy life with Pop-Tart, who I love very much. Um, to the beer, this week I have an Atwater Brewery product called Wango, which is a wheat ale with a bit of mango. I'm wondering if I had it before. I think we had something else that might have been a mango wheat beer, but I don't think it was the Atwater product from episodes gone by. This one has a green and orangish shark on the can and a picture of a mango. Um, it's 4.9% alcohol with 14 IBUs. And then there's this very long, super fine print paragraph on the side of the can, which I will not read to you. It's rather boring. It's difficult to read. I don't know exactly what they think they're achieving by putting it on there. I can't imagine that most people would ever sit through reading the entire thing. Okay, so let's give this a crack. Uh, that splashed all over the screen. You would think I would know better by now. Okay. Uh, something else that I'm trying for the first time. Uh, I have a pint koozie. So uh, we ordered these up at the brewery. And uh, they're like a foam can koozie kind of thing that fit around your pint glass. And I don't know whether it really keeps your beer colder or not, but I'm going to give it a shot. I plan on doing a little experiment this weekend with a thermometer to really see if it does keep it colder than a non-koozie pint glass. But... If any of you have any feedback regarding such, I'd like to hear about it. And um, They look cool, and uh, they feel good in your hands. Gives you a nice grip on the can, on the, on the glass. The first thing I notice about it is I can't really see the color of the beer. Um, it is uh, very blonde, golden, a little hazy. So I'll put that right back into the koozie. Take my first sip. Oh, I should also <clears throat> let you know that I do have a cold. I think I'm on the tail end of it. If I sound a little nasally or stuffed up, that is why. And, of course, I don't really, uh, I, I don't think I'll be um, getting as much of the flavor of the beer that I should, uh, given the cold. Uh, very refreshing on the front end. The mango kind of sneaks up on you on the back end, uh, which I actually kind of like because it doesn't come across as too sweet uh, at the beginning. Um, this is very cold. It tastes very refreshing. So we'll see. The initial reactions are that it's pretty tasty. 
All right, what's been happening in Washington and places of such in the last week or so? Because I was out and I tried to remain apolitical while I was out getting married. Um, wasn't completely successful, and I will share a story which made it all the more difficult to remain apolitical while I was on my, I don't know if it's a honeymoon, if you get married while you're away in a honeymoon destination. It's kind of a combination of both. Maybe we'll do a trip in the future and call it a real honeymoon, but isn't that just a vacation at some point in time? Like, what's the difference? I don't know. One of the hot topics uh, running around Washington right now is the uh, commission for the January 6th investigation. And that looks to be all but dead, I, I would say. I think the Republicans are going to be successful in their attempts to kill it because the Democrats still, and Joe Manchin and Cinema uh, still are not going to be supportive of abolishing the filibuster. So that's going to continue to hurt the Democrats. read a great article on Vox this week uh, about just how serious our democracy is based on the authoritarian tactics of the Republicans and that Repub and that Democrats just seem to be in a stupor about the whole thing. Uh, I, I recommend you read it as well. You can probably find it on the Vox website um, or scrolling through if you have them feed into your Facebook. But it doesn't paint a very good picture. And it does, you know, in some ways, doesn't put the blame on Mansion and cinema. But, you know, it, it, it alludes to the fact that they're being foolish in their idea of they think they are saving democracy. They think they are saving the Constitution by not going to a strict majority rule system, which, of course, uh, you know, that could in some future come back and bite the Democrats. But it's hard to see how when the majority of America is voting Democratic. I mean, the number of votes that are cast Democratic over Republican is, is growing every single cycle, and it's going to continue to grow. And what's happening is we are, we are losing our democracy because Republicans who want to stay in power are doing what they can to change the rules and maintain that power until the people are powerless. And the Republican supporters, uh, certainly like the Trumpsters, they live in some kind of strange, bizarre world that somehow or another this is going to benefit them. And uh, in the end, it will not. Uh, but I guess it does relate back to the commission to investigate what happened January 6th. And obviously, the Republicans don't want this commission to take place because it's going to keep to the forefront the the events of January 6th, but as well as that, the authoritarian nature of the previous president and their complicity or their enabling that allowed it to happen because the investigation will encompass what led up to January 6th and how the seeds were planted that created, you know, a uh, an attempted, you know, violent coup of our democratic process. And they obviously want to ignore that. 
but they don't really completely want to ignore it because they want to be able to use that anger, use that fervor that has been built up into that base as part of a primary voting block. And right now they're kind of getting the best of both worlds. They know and we know why it happened and yet they don't have to be accountable for it as they try to benefit from it. The Democrats have got to figure out a way to use it as a cudgel against them and to make sure that it isn't seen as a political weapon of good for the Republicans, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it looks like it's, it's, it's going to be dead and the Democrats are going to have to figure out another way to uh, keep it going. It would have been amazing to see if they really would have used subpoena power to see some of the top people involved sit in front of a congressional panel and a congressional hearing and tell their story. You know, I, I love the analogies of Hillary Clinton sitting in front of Republicans for 11 hours discussing Benghazi, which was a true witch hunt. And yet she did it. And she did it and she did it unflinchingly. And she answered all their questions and they had nothing to rattle her about. And they look like complete fools. And the Republicans don't want to be held to that standard because Hillary set that standard that said, okay, you think I'm accountable. I will you know, take personal responsibility for the parts that uh, she was responsible for, but the rest of it, um, she will answer their questions and put them you know, back in their place. And the Republicans really can't do that in this situation. So they're going to avoid it as best they can. Um, you know, and I do think there's a lot of unanswered questions. Some of it would be political theater, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially as it leads towards primary and uh, general election voting. But some of it still needs to be answered. Was there any reconnaissance done in the days leading up to the the siege on the Capitol. There's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that there may have been. Were certain Congress people involved in that reconnaissance? There's ample evidence that that might be the case. Who was responsible for the lack of response uh, once the siege started? You, you know, there was some finger pointing. It went from, you know, the DOD and the Capitol Police and the White House and people even trying to pin it on Pelosi, which is a bunch of nonsense. Certainly, there were people at the top that did not want, for political reasons probably, did not want to stop the siege. And there were also probably people at the top that wanted the siege to succeed with whatever that their, their goal was. And for every Yahoo out there, you know, they might have had a different goal. Some of those were extreme violence where they wanted to string people up, kill them, beat them to death. Others maybe just wanted to have the election overturned in some manner. Others wanted it to be a catalyst for a complete civil war, whatever it might have been. But, you know, to better understand what was driving all of that and what drove all of that to that point, I think is critical. You know, it's, it's critical to understand these things so that they don't happen again, which the Republicans 
with their blocking of the commission, you know, one can only speculate that they would like to see it again, that they're starting to lay the groundwork of this is how you would overturn an election if you really wanted to, if you needed to. Could you get away with it? Could you get away with the things that they're getting away with? And right now, they're testing the waters. And those tests are coming back positive, kind of reflecting back on, on what I said earlier. And the Democrats have got to figure out a way to put a stop to this positive feedback loop that the Republicans are getting from attempting to subvert democracy. And I, I, you know, even when I say it, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's really not. It's, it's, it's actually quite scary. So I think, I think it's dead. And um, I don't know what else to say about it other than what I have and that it just doesn't bode well for democracy. And everything that Mitch McConnell says is lip service. What he does is what's important. You know, the Democrats have to realize this and the holdouts within the Democratic Party, they have to realize this so they can start adjusting their tactics. You know, it's, it's kind of like a sports analogy where, you know, in the late innings, got baseball in my mind, I guess, but in the second half, you make adjustments to basically what your opponent is doing. And the Democrats so far aren't doing any of that. Biden is trying. Biden is trying to make adjustments to that. Today, he came out and rattled off the list of Republican congresspeople who were talking up the COVID relief bill to their constituents, ones that voted against it, but now are trying to take credit for it. I love that. That is changing the game. That is putting them back on defense. That's the way you go about it. And what he did today was the, the way that Congress has to start uh, playing the game as well. Another sip of beer. It's pretty tasty. That was actually a few sips. Uh, I, I enjoy it very much. I'm glad I have a six-pack of it, and I don't expect it to last. The other thing that's happening in Washington right now is the battle over the infrastructure bill. And I guess you could say that today there was a little negotiation. And I say that with skepticism, just oozing from my mind. I think he started out at $2.3 trillion, and then... They countered with something like $500 billion, but it wasn't even a legitimate counter. He lowered his to $1.7 trillion, and today they came back with almost a billion, $985 billion or something like that. So it would appear that they're negotiating, but we have been down this road before. They're really not negotiating. Even if Biden and the Democrats accepted their version of the bill, Okay, just as it is written from their hands, when it came to the vote, they would still pull the football away. They're not going to vote for it. They're not going to give Biden a win, especially a win on infrastructure. And for those that think that they will and that they are negotiating in good faith, you're just as foolish as Joe Manchin, because that's just not going to happen. And they're not going to allow that to happen. Now, what does it mean to does Biden come back and offer 1.4 and they chip away at certain programs or, you know, focus in on traditional, if, if that's okay to use traditional infrastructure of roads and bridges and, you know, internet. And, you know, maybe he goes after 
some of more more of his social programs at a later date, which you know I, I see as, as infrastructure because it improves the overall stability of America. But I could also understand if I thought that the Republicans were negotiating good faith, let's get it done, maybe not in piecemeal, but in chunks. You don't get everything. That's not what's going to happen. They're, they're going to say, this is what we want. Democrats will capitulate and then they'll vote no. And unless they pass it through reconciliation, it won't matter, right? Because the, they'll filibuster it and it'll die. And, you know, they'll say that the Democrats didn't negotiate in good faith and their constituents will believe them because they have no other way to believe otherwise, because otherwise their world would be turned upside down. So I don't know if infrastructure is as dead as the January 6th commission. <laughs> I, I, I hope that it's not. What they're, what they're haggling over right now is how to pay for it, or at least that's what the Republicans are saying. They're saying that they don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy or on those that have the money. That's the way I look, like to look at it, to pay for infrastructure. This is very reminiscent of what happened in Michigan. The governor ran a campaign on fix the damn roads. The roads here in Michigan are atrocious. Then when she won on that, of course, you've got to pay for the roads. And the Republicans said, no, we're not going to pay for them. So it looks like she's not meeting campaign promises. But in fact, the Republicans aren't just going to fund it. And that's a power that they have. So who's not who's not fixing the damn roads, her or the Republicans? Now, if you've been driving in Michigan anywhere in the last month or so, it sure does seem like they're fixing the damn roads because there's a lot of construction out there right now. And it's not it's not very pleasant, but and and maybe I know I know there were some some things that she did and the Republicans did to to get some of the funding because the roads were that bad. But Washington is is a whole nother level of obstruction than what happens at the state level, and uh, I I just don't I just don't see Republicans budging on this in a way that's going to give not Biden a win, give the American people a win. They want America to fail under Joe Biden. That strengthens their case for 2022 and 2024. It doesn't matter who is in that office. They want America to fail. They don't want America to improve itself under a Democratic administration and Democratic uh, House. And maybe that's just politics. Trumpsters could have said the same thing about Democrats during the Trump years. And the argument, of course, that I would make is, well, we didn't want Trump to succeed with his horrible, corrupt policies, you know, the xenophobic policies, his anti-LGBTQ policies, his anti-poverty policies, or I should say pro-poverty policies. Yeah. So that's there, there's a difference when it comes down to the, the policies and what you're trying to achieve. And when you're really trying to achieve improvement in America um, and, and not go back to the 50s, which is what the Republican movement is all about, both from a racial standpoint as well as economic standpoint, and to an even 
to a certain extent, even a civil rights standpoint, that's what they want to go back to. You know, that was bad for America, and that's why we wanted the Trump administration to fail. Not because of he was in power, but because of what he stood for. But the Republicans, they are only consumed with power. And so they want Biden to fail, not really because of what he stands for, because you really can't argue the kinds of things that progressives are looking to do for America. I mean, whether it's safer cities, better health care, living wages, all of these things are you know, positive traits in any other country in the world. And for some bizarre fixation with Republicans and Trumpsters, these are negative and they want to equate it to socialism and communism and a bunch of words that they don't even understand. I guess in the end, you could say that I'm really not very positive or have a very optimistic outlook. Uh, I hope it gets better, <laughs> but I don't know that it is. <laughs> the, other, the other thing on my mind this week, and I, I'm, I'm, I am going to try and keep it, it short, is this cultural battle that's being waged right now on critical race theory. And you have states now passing bans on teaching critical race theory, which really, if you're a teacher and you can face jail time for teaching CRT, it really means you're going to avoid the whole conversation of race all in all. Because Critical race theory is really just the, the the topic of how race has affected America. It's part of uh, histor uh, uh, American history. I mean, you could you could do world critical race theory as well, but but it's really just about how race and racism has shaped America and how it still shapes America. It's historical in its in its base, but then it brings it into today's world. And these things cannot be denied. And that's exactly what Republicans want to do. They want to ban critical race theory because they don't want racism called out. I mean, so many Republicans right now are even sort of on the record saying that systemic racism uh, it doesn't happen in the U.S. And of course, it's absurd and there's tons of data to, to support it otherwise. I was watching a video from Mark Lamont Hill, who, if you're not familiar with him, I highly recommend checking out some of his videos and writings. He's probably a professor at an all-black college, but I'm not positive about that. The first time I ever saw Mark Lamont Hill was, uh, he, he used to spar with Bill O'Reilly, and he would just tear him down. And it was always just so fun to watch. But Bill O'Reilly at least had respect for Mark Lamont Hill. And he had him on the show, and he wasn't afraid to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. Towards the latter years of Bill O'Reilly's show, I don't think he was on as much. And, and then he kind of disappeared. But anyway, Mark had on a, a guest recently on his YouTube channel, I, I think, and, or I'm not sure what, it, what it's on, and to discuss critical race theory. And this white supremacist that he had on basically was saying that you know, you know, you've heard these lines, I don't see color. Why do we want to teach the differences in race? And Mark made a very good point about something. He said, that's your white privilege. 
you, you can say you don't see color because you're not of color. He said, I can, could also say that I don't see color, right? I don't see you as white and, you know, that guy over there is black. But the truth is, I have to live in a world where people see me as color and therefore, you know, I have higher poverty rates. I don't get paid as much. I can't get housing as easily. Uh, I'm more susceptible to dying of COVID. And he listed all of those things that, however, a white person says they don't want to see color, that doesn't change the reality of the world. And and, and then he he asked a really interesting question. Uh, I, I still kind of have it rattling around in my brain. And that is, he asked the guest what he likes about being white. And he, he really could not answer that. And it's a difficult question to answer unless you sort of admit that you have white privilege. I mean, that's really the answer to that. I mean, I mean, we, we don't necessarily identify as a white culture, which is probably a good thing. Now, minorities, right, they, they coalesce around their culture. It's the nature of having a minority. And, you know, listed a number of black cultural things that he likes about being black. And this guy could not answer anything about what he saw as positive about being white. And it was it was just a really interesting take. And I, I I would press upon you to think about that a little bit. If you're white, what is it about being white that that you like? And it's not a matter of pushing guilt. It's just a matter of viewing the world as it is and as others might view you and trying to just get a different perspective on things. So I, I really thought it was, was pretty cool. I don't have a lot of time here left because I've got to jump on a website and finish up something. But I did want to share uh, with you a story that happened to me while I was in Florida last week getting married. And uh, we were, there was eight of us, we were at the Ritz-Carlton in Naples, on Naples Beach. Uh, if, you ever, if you've never been there, I recommend it. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of property, and they have the, this big, long, tiki hut bar that is on stilts above the beach overlooking the Gulf of Mexico, and it's all very fabulous and expensive. And we're sitting there, and we're just finishing up our lunch, the eight of us, and guess who walks by us? You'll never guess. I'll tell you. Bill Barr. Yep. Trump's AG walks right by us. He's with his wife, I assume, and maybe his daughter, but some other younger woman, probably too young to be his daughter. Uh, but they walk right by us. I had my back to the aisle and the party that I was with was like, oh my God, that's Bill Barr. And, you know, I kind of turned and I saw him from the side back of his head and you know, his back, and he's he's a rather boxy sort of character, as Fred would always refer to him as Peter Griffith. And so he was just sort of lumbering away. He was wearing a suit coat, whatever. I, my blood pressure just went right up. I mean, I just, I, I so wanted to say something. I so wanted to do something. I didn't know how to react. It was, it was nuts. And Pop-Tart is telling me that I can't do anything, can't say anything. I better, you know, behave. And I don't know. I don't know if public humiliation is the way to go in these things. But he went down to some other end of the bar that 
was out of sight. Him and his group must have been down there for a few minutes, and we were now getting our, our tabs. And I don't, we, he was out of sight, and I don't know what occurred down there, but something occurred because about five minutes later, a waitress is walking him back up towards us, and they seat him at the table right next to us. So now I really want to go confront. Like, I, I don't know. I probably would have said something like, you know, you should be in jail, you rotten POS. Or, you know, do I get to lie to Congress and not face consequences? My sister said I should be, should have been more sort of passive aggressive and done the, you know, it's really starting to stink around here kind of approach. But part of me just says, look, am I going to feel better by causing a scene? I don't think so. Uh, I'm certainly not going to make my group maybe feel better if I cause a scene. Maybe some of them would. Some of them really don't want to get involved in that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I bit my tongue. And, you know, people on Facebook told me I, I lost an opportunity of a lifetime. I, I, I don't know. Um, but someone did ask me the question, did anyone... Did anyone approach him in a flattering or congratulatory way? And nobody did. And I think that says a lot. I mean, I think the Trumpsters turned on him too. But And I don't know what happened at the other, other end of the bar to make him move. It could have been a confrontation. But there wasn't, everyone knew who he was, right? He's very noticeable. And it, it seemed that, you know, nobody took the time to go out of their way to shake his hand. And I think that says a lot. But you know, maybe public humiliation is what folks like him need and to be as uncomfortable as possible. As you can tell, I'm still thinking maybe I, I did blow it. Maybe I did wimp out. I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, ask you to think about what you would have done in that situation and, and think about it in, in as deeply as you can, right? Because it's easy to say, you know, oh, you would have flicked peas at him, right? But you probably wouldn't have done that. Who knows? Maybe. I do believe my sister probably would have started to say something about, you know, the, the, the fish smells rotten out here. So maybe that's uh, the way that uh, I should have gone about it because I'm pretty sure she would have. Anyway, so that's all I got this week. I got to jump on this other thing that I'm involved in. So I am on a time crunch and I appreciate you listening in. And as soon as I get it uploaded out, enjoy your uh, listening experience. And I'll be back at you ASAP. Oh, last thing. Happy 80th birthday to Bob Dylan. Uh, that was also this week. And uh, that's a big deal for me and hopefully a big deal for him too. So remember, drink up, listen up, and pot him up. Out. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics, I don't know.